recognize that while we may not all be trying to please our parents or assuage their ghosts, we are all subjected to unconscious belief systems that shape us. And those have powered you to power through, to leave home, to make a life for yourself. And one of the impulses, when we start to understand and see these unconscious threads, in, in my book, I call them the subroutines that define our lives. When we start to see the existence of these subroutines, one of the first impulses is to say, boy, I'm really fucked up. And you're not. You're human. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. There's this beautiful stretch of open space near my house here in Boulder, where I will often go for a walk or a run to clear my thoughts or to find them. It's a big open field filled with golden grasses and splotches of golden flowers. There's prairie dogs and prairie dog mounds all over the place. Rabbits tucked into the pockets of thick grass. And bald eagles and red-tailed hawks often circle overhead. It's truly a magical space where I can feel both alone and connected. But this morning as I strolled, I heard a rattle in the grass that made me stop in my tracks. Now in these parts, a rattle could mean you are encroaching on a rattlesnake's turf, something you do not want to do. I felt my heart rate jump. My eyes frantically scanned the surroundings. Where was it? There was literally a snake in the grass, and I couldn't even see it. Do you know this feeling? It's like fear and even panic, and your brain almost goes offline, and your body jumps into action, where you kick into survival mode because it feels like you are literally being threatened. I'm sure this is familiar to you, and I'm sure it's not just when you're worried about snakes. If you're like me, and you're like many of the clients we serve, You've probably even felt this in a tense conversation or getting feedback from someone or presenting something to your board. Your brain really goes offline and your body comes online and prepares you for the survival fight, prepares you for the potential snake in the grass, the one you can't even see, but you know, you know they are there. Or are they? There was a time in my life when the metaphorical snake was actually there and it was indeed capable of inflicting real harm, though it wasn't a snake. It was someone that mattered to me. And instead of a bite, it was my sense of belonging or love or just general safety that were challenged. And in that moment or multiple moments, I was wounded. And I made a commitment to myself to never be wounded like that again. In order to stay safe, it's important that I hear and look for snakes in the grass and even see them when they aren't there. It's safer to stay small than to risk the bite. It's safer to assume my love, safety, and belonging and worthiness are legitimately at risk than to actually put them at risk. But it's time to step forward. It's time to face the potential snakes. It's time to change my relationship with the snakes. As my heart raced this morning, I took a breath and I took a step. And I realized the sound that I heard, that was the wind blowing through the tall grass. My heart rate slowed. My brain came back online. There was no snake. It was just the wind. And the threat? It was in my head, thinking about snakes of the past. I took a breath, took another step, and lifted my gaze to catch two bald eagles flying right in front of me. If I'm too caught up 
and looking for threats from the past and the grass below. I might miss what's ahead or above. Shizu is an incredibly talented entrepreneur who finds herself building and leading two companies. She's the founder and CEO of Wealthy, a family of direct-to-consumer wellness brands, including Drink and Apothecary. She finds herself burdened by a persistent fear that it could all disappear in a moment, a fear that has worked its way into her day-to-day, even down to how her business is structured. But what if, like me, the snake she fears is not even there? What if it's just the wind? Enjoy this conversation with Shizu and Jerry. Being the founder or CEO of a startup is hard. It can be lonely with long hours and constant demands, with a to-do list that may feel like it's never-ending and really unforgiving. And there's no manual to help you clear a path through. If you're looking for an opportunity to change how you experience leadership, join Team Reboot at our CEO Founder Bootcamp this March in Boulder, Colorado. Together with your cohort, you'll establish greater awareness of your personal leadership habits so you can reboot and refresh what it means to be a CEO or founder of your organization. You'll create a customized strategy for being the leader you want to be, all while building a network of peers that you can rely on. To learn more about the 2020 CEO Founder Bootcamp and to submit your application, head to reboot.io slash bootcamps. So, hi, Shizu. It's really a delight to connect with you. Why don't you just take a moment and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and then uh, and we'll see what, what could be helpful for you. Perfect. Yeah. So I am the founder and CEO of Wealthy and Company, which is a parent company that owns multiple wellness brands. And so we have one company called Drink, um, which I started seven years ago um, after I quit my Wall Street job. And then uh, recently this year, another brand called Apothecary, which is a herbal um, pharmacy that offers natural solutions to pharmaceutical drugs. And so, you know, we're two direct-to-consumer brands. Um, We're located between New York and D.C. Uh, You know, we've taken on some rounds of capital and we're, you know, growing quickly. And I, I think, you know, for this context of this conversation, I would love to kind of chat through sort of you know, my thoughts between how I manage time and how I should be managing time, I feel, the shouldas between uh, the two companies. And, uh, and yeah, also a yogi uh, and uh, a plant hoarder, I tell my friends, and uh, a daughter of uh, a farmer and, and all that good stuff. Well, that's great. And thank you for that. And um, just so I can land it, um, do, are you CEO of Wealthy? Yes, I am. Yeah. So chairman and CEO, um, treasurer and bookkeeper. Got it. Got it. So what would be helpful to talk through? What, do you, what are you holding on to as, as an issue that, uh, that might be useful to talk through? Yeah. So I think, you know, for today, the most active thoughts in my mind I have recently are just a, how do I manage my time effectively as a leader? Uh, feelings, I think, of being torn between two companies, two different capital structures and investors. Um, And three, this idea of potentially exiting one company, but maybe not for the value that I had originally wanted or anticipated, yet people want me to kind of stick it out longer. 
but I also want to build another company at the same time. So one's kind of a very mature baby and like ready for exit. Um, and another is just starting. So I just feel like I'm not using my time effectively or a little bit of guilt probably to people that I've taken money on from friends and family. And, uh, and yeah, just kind of trying to think through that and, and manage my team and maybe feels like there's seven jobs going on at the same time, which maybe is all on an entrepreneur's job. <laughs> yeah. So you've got a lot going on. I do. Yeah. Two companies, um, two investor bases and we're opening our sixth store inside Whole Foods for our, my drink company, which is IDC sort of like largest cold press juice and delivery business um, with a great name brand like Whole Foods. And, you know, we kind of, I feel like you, as an entrepreneur, you feel like you made it when you kind of work with someone like that. Um, but, you know, I feel like it's, you know, it's not as exciting and sexy as it used to be. It's seven years in and, um, you know, we received a few offers to potentially sell the company and just trying to think, you know, is this the best time to do that? Do, will I max my shareholder value by doing that? And if not, then do I stick it out and try to run two companies at the same time? Mm. And, you know, I, I'm going to get some more of the sort of pragmatic uh, context that's going sure. on here. Yeah. Um, uh, so I can really sort of understand it. Seven years in, two companies, but one parent company, one holding company. Yep. But two investor bases. Yeah. So investors have um, the opportunity to invest at the apothecary subsidiary level and then also at the drink subsidiary level. Uh, but I sit at the board level at the parent company where it's basically a shell entity. Um, and originally, when we first started the business, we put, you know, all the capital was at the parent company, but we've since restructured and moved everything down to the subs. Hmm. And not to get too in the weeds, but why did you do that? Um, we were having trouble fundraising at the apothecary level with drink being attached to it because nobody wanted to invest in sort of the retail juice business that was kind of, you know, more mature and competitive and um, super short shelf life. And so I felt this level of, oh, this, you know, new investors aren't going to want the old stuff, quote unquote. And then on the drink side, we, you know, if we wanted to sell drink, we would have had to sold apothecary with it. So it only made sense to kind of split the two separately. Mm -hmm. uh, this is actually very, you know, a, a current thing that I'm going through right now with the restructuring and fundraising and exiting. So it really tests me, I think, as an entrepreneur that, you know, you create, you build, and you end. I think that's the three kind of roles. So trying to do that all at the same time has been a little bit, uh, a little bit a lot, a little bit a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, I'm sort of feeling a lot of different pulls in a lot of different directions. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a thing that occurs whether it's in a therapeutic relationship or a coaching relationship where the, the coach, the therapist starts to feel um, what the client is feeling. Right. And so I'm imagining um, going back to the words you're using before the guilt um, you, you made a reference about all the shoulds that you have going on. Yeah. Um, there's a piece of me that feels the 
desire to know what to do. Yeah. And I want to name that and honor that. And I'm going to do, I'm, I'm going to say something to you that I've often said to clients um, uh, in other circumstances. And that is, um, I promise you that we will get to the what to do. But first, I want you to indulge me in let's talking about the context of how you are within this. Yeah. Okay. Um, how important is it for you, or more specifically, how important has it been for you to do the right thing? Very important. Um, I think as, uh, you know, maybe growing up in a household that was very Asian and Japanese, where we always say sorry first, uh, we always want to make sure we over deliver uh, and, uh, you know, keep our word. And so I think those values have been, I think my word is everything and how I act should reflect that. And so there, I, I definitely think there's this level of wanting to prove myself, make sure I do the right thing and the responsible thing. And I think being in this kind of industry in particular with wellness and healthy living and being pure, I think there's this idea that, you know, we need to have our shit together all the time. <laughs> so need to have the shit together all the time. Okay. Thank you. Um, and as you were describing that, I know that the listeners are not uh, seeing your face, but as you were describing that, there was you got you seem to get a little flushed. Yeah. So which tells me that the roots of that are deep. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm gonna repeat back to you a line, which is you need to have your shit together all the time. Right. All the time. And the first thing that occurs to me is that must be fucking exhausting. It is, yeah. Yeah. So right now, what's happening for you? Just notice the softness that's just come in. So you're a wellness person. You're a yogi. Yeah, now you're breathing. <laughs> right. We're going to take a deep breath together. There we go. So I'm seeing a picture. You tell me if this lands for you. Um, I know from a little bit of the background that uh, you worked at Goldman before. Before that, you worked at the World Bank. I did, yeah. And, um, and not only do you have one business, but you have two. I do. And not only do you have two businesses, but you actually have a very clever and complex structure that made sure that Apothecary got funding, even though drinks didn't. Right. And so you reached into kind of a really intellectually clever way to make sure that that happened. Yeah. And all of a sudden I had this feeling of this little kid who's been figuring shit out for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think in this last year, now that it's September, it's kind of crazy because in this nine months, I feel like I actually didn't achieve anything. Like mm. there was nothing except a lot of talk and a lot of emails with boards and 
I just feel like nothing got accomplished. Um, and uh, I, except, of course, a deal with Whole Foods. Yeah, but I, I always told myself that that deal was made last year and it's finally happening now. And, you know, I, I, I hope that I was able to take capital and use it effectively. But in some ways, I feel like nothing this year really, really got done. Um, and I look back at the seven, eight years that we've been doing this and there's, I feel like as entrepreneurs, you kind of go through this, you know, like super fast growth. And then you kind of plateau a little bit as you figure out the direction of the business. Like what's the real business model? How do you want to take it from here? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like we're kind of, I'm kind of at that stage, but with two companies and I just want to know that I'm doing the right thing for the team with our investors. Am I being true to myself is kind of always the last question. Um, so it was easier when I had a partner, but she left. So I think uh, it's, you know, it's, it's lonely at the top. <laughs> so in addition to um, always needing to keep your shit together, always doing the right thing, which by the way is different right? Keeping your shit together means not having it fall apart. Right. Right. Which of course could be the right thing, but doing the right thing also implies, you said before, being true to myself, but it also means being true to everybody around you. Right. In addition to carrying all of that, there's a sense of loneliness that comes when your co-founder left. Which is always a, an interesting relationship, I think, to manage after the fact. And, uh, you know, it, it's even if they leave, they're still kind of, you know, they're on the cap table. There's things to consider. There's just, you know, back you need, of mind. You, you need oh. their approval if you're going to change the capital structure, if you're going to issue more, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in some ways it's kind of like, uh, you know, when you date someone and they divorce you and you kind of want to, you still want to, you still want to do well by them. You want to show that you can do it even by yourself. And because that's doing the right thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. It just cut you off. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. The reason I jumped in was because I just feel so strongly this wish that you have to to act from a place of integrity. What would you like to have happen with the company? Oh, I think in the ideal, ideal world, uh, I would eventually exit the company for, you know, X money to, you know, return money to shareholders, investors, have a clean, no investor cap table. uh, Because I feel like once you start fundraising, you'll always be fundraising. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then just have my own sort of pool of capital that I could maybe, you know, use to either grow a business, um, buy businesses, invest in businesses, but by myself and not having that burden, I think of, always doing the right thing. Mm. Always keeping your shit together, making sure that you do right by those investors. Yeah. Yeah. 
and I, you know, I don't, I don't know why the investor voice seems so much more powerful to me than maybe even friends or even my employees or customers. It's like the investor voice that just like feels so much more powerful in my mind. And I, I'm trying to understand why that might be. Well, what occurs to you? I mean, I, I, I can offer a million different things, but those would be coming from my psyche. What yeah. occurs to you? Um, it's probably this idea that like financially, we're probably in the strongest place that we are in now, but there's this underlying fear that if there's a recession or, you know, things slow down or the unknown unknowns of the business happen that I will need to rely on investor support. And so maybe there's this like idea that they will always have my back. Mm -hmm. And so I want to make sure I always have their back. So you anticipate them needing them. So you want to make sure that they know that you will always put them first. Is that, is that, am I feeling that right? I think so. I think so. And I, yes. And on the other side of that, I think arguably, I, I used to spend so much more time wanting to please employees and make sure that they were happy and that they are, you know, comfortable and that we had a really great culture. And I still do, but I think with co-founders leaving and employees leaving in the past, which as they should, um, it's harder to want to invest in something that's always going to leave you. Hmm. Can we shift gears a little bit? Yeah. I'm just following my intuition. Um, you said dad was a farmer. Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? Tell me the story. Uh, so my parents moved to Vancouver in Canada like 20, like 30 years ago. They moved and there from where? From Japan. Yeah. My dad uh, was from Tokyo. My mom was from Osaka. And uh, so they moved over to Vancouver as immigrants and had three children. I'm the youngest. And uh, I moved out at a young age, and he now has a farm. He's retired and grows a lot of fruits and vegetables and has honeybees and lives a very zen life, I must say. <laughs> and what was he doing? Uh, what did mom and dad do um, before the farm as part of the immigration to Vancouver? Uh, so my dad was a landscaper. He designed Japanese gardens for a living, uh, made them, um, designed them. And then my mom was sort of the administrative stay-at-home wife that, you know, helped with the business. But she did a lot of the things that I think, you know, he couldn't do. Um, and I think we joke about it to this day where he's the one that always has the fun projects and the fun stuff. And my mom always has to do the, the, the you know, the administrative non-sexy stuff in the background. Mm. But they're both retired now. So there's a couple of threads that I would I would pull on. I'm, I'm imagining a relationship between your commitment to healthy living and what you saw your parents uh, experiencing. And you, you immediately went to and um, talking about um, dad living a very Zen-like existence. And, you know, um, most Americans don't understand that phrase Zen. And so um, they will inappropriately apply it to anything that implies calm. Right, right. Whereas, whereas your dad actually, by working closely with the land, yeah. 
yeah. actually is closer to that Zen tradition, isn't he? Yeah, and I mean, I think the Iaido and the Kendo that he's been teaching for 40 years now, we have a dojo on the farm. Uh, so we practice meditation when we were practicing for eight, like myself for eight years. And, mm. the, you know, Zen is, is short for Zazen in Japanese, where you sit and meditate and Zazen meditation for days. And, and uh, so I think innately I was so fascinated with this idea of natural living, uh, alternative living, East meets West approach. And uh, it's easier to, I always I joke about this, it's easier to speed up in a slow environment than it is to slow down in a fast environment. Amen, sister. <laughs> so it's just, I think in this fast paced world of New York and DC, I just felt like, how do I bring slowness and calmness and wellness really to my community that's around me? And, and of course you spent years at Goldman and the world bank, which are not necessarily slow environments. No, they are not. But I felt like, I guess, they gave me the structure of frameworks of thinking maybe for the business and some level of credibility. I mean, I don't really use any of that stuff now, but language is understandable from cap tables, investor language. Um, but I fear too much that maybe that's too caught up in my ego and identity hmm. and story. So tell me, um, so you were obvious, not obviously, were you raised with um, a spiritual tradition in this way? Uh, you know, my sisters aren't, and my mom is not spiritual um, at all. I, I moved out when I was a really at a really young age, and I think I was always curious to build my own way and path, and part of that was just trying to find meaning to my life, and spirituality was kind of the natural next step. I, so after New York, and I lived in, um, I lived in Africa for about a year and I went to Bali for three months to get my yoga teacher training and mm. learn a little bit more about yoga, philosophy, um, ahimsa to, to everything. And so, yeah, I think living a life that was round versus square was always really interesting and fascinating for me and spirituality helped to kind of make meaning to all of that. Mm. So, um, in my own experience and in the observation that we make about a lot of Americans who feel drawn to Eastern traditions, they typically are coming from a place of being square, to use your language, mm -hmm. and trying to sort of round the edges a bit and trying to, to heal um, uh, some experiences. And yeah. they see a resonance in that. And the result is oftentimes trying to reconcile again, to reflect language that you've been using fast and slow, fast and slow. Yeah. And I see you trying to reconcile fast and slow, fast and slow. Um, I'm curious about one other piece here. And again, uh, I'm thinking about the do the right thing, keep your shit together. Um, if we imagine for a moment um, a connection to the Zen teachings, what, what would the response be to, you better keep your shit together? Um, I think one thing, one quote that really resonates with me a lot is this idea that 
you know, letting go is one, right? Just like the nature of yoga where you're in Shavasana, letting go. Two would be the more I think about the future, that's anxiety. The more you think about the past, that's depression. And then really the only true bliss point is living presently. Um, but I think with fundraising and thinking about exit, thinking about the team, all the the money stuff, you're always living in anxiety because you're always thinking about the future and projection. Well, and, 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 and if I may, I think you're adding to that anxiety by also layering in the do the right thing by way of those powerful investors who somehow believed in you and wrote a check. Right, right. Because you may need them at some future calamitous moment. Correct. Right. So and that, that just landed for you. Yeah. Say that again. It's the pull of the should. So the past speaking to the future of the anxiety. Okay. So, so let's, let's hang out there for a moment. Did mom and dad ever experience calamity? Uh. I feel like my mom has always been a little more of an anxious personality. So like whenever we go to Costco, I feel like we buy the entire free. <laughs> like, seriously, like, like five loaves of bread and like the freezers always over, like about to explode. But, but, but we laugh, but how old, how old is mom? Uh, she's in her mid seventies now. Okay. And what did she grow up with? Nothing. So I think she, you know, in Osaka, she had three siblings and always would tell us about the story of like splitting a sweet potato for dinner amongst your entire family. Right. And, 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 and what year was she born? 1947. And what happened in 1945? It was World War II. Oh, more than that. Oh, yeah. In, in Japan, it was really bad. Okay. So let's just pause and honor them. One of the things that I often speak about um, is the epigenetic intergenerational experience, war, genocide, poverty. They, they, they live in our bones. They live in our DNA. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of evidence that shows that trauma such as genocide within a community um, changes the chromosomal structure. Right. Right. And so um, we want to honor mom and dad because they're parents. And part of the theme here is I better be careful about those investors because something can take it all away. Bang. In a snap. Jerry, why do I worry about the investors more than I worry about someone else? Perhaps, perhaps, Shizu. Because one of the survival strategies you grew up with was you better load up at Costco. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you laughed because because we wanna we wanna acknowledge the structures, right? right? But, th- but think about what mom is carrying. You said of the two, mom is the more anxious. Of the two, dad has moved as he's moved into elderhood, yeah. tending to honeybees. Yeah. 
which is such a such a present day activity that is focused on the future because god bless the fact that he's tending to honeybees because we need honeybees as a species, we need them. It's one of the many, many iterations in which the planet is crying out for help and the climate is in crisis. And yet we haven't even heard your dad's story about, but your mom splitting a sweet potato. Yeah. And so of course you have to do the right thing to make sure that there's enough sweet potatoes. Right. And of course you can't just have one job. You have to have two. And of course, like so many people, you have that high achiever response. Right. As a way to stay safe. Is this resonating with you? It does. When you say high achiever response is that the need to continue growing and fundraising and scaling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I would say more simply, always have your shit together. Right. Right. Always have your shit together. How often were you late in school in in turning in a term paper? Never. 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 It's like if, 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 if we could capture the look on your face, it was like you look at me like I was speaking Greek. Are you kidding me? What? Couldn't conceive of it. Never. Right? I mean, I feel like there was, a, there was a stage in my high school where I ran away from home. Mm-hmm. And, I wa- you know, I, there was a lot of other things going on in my family, but some internal chaos with my siblings and, I felt it was almost easier if I just left home and take care of myself and uh, move out. And I never went back and I paid my way. That's what you were referring to when you said you left home early. Yeah. Yeah. How old were you? uh, I was about 17. Hmm. Yeah. So I think this idea of leaning on people, and this impacts me, I think, personally, too, in dating or relationships. is just like, it's petrifying. What will happen if you lean on people? God, if, and if they leave, it's this, like, level of crumbling where I have no, maybe, foundation. Hmm. Yeah. I want to pause and, and just acknowledge th- that you've just said something really, really powerful and, and moving. So I want to reflect back what I just heard you say. And I relate to this because I left my house at 17 to escape the chaos. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I hear you, my sister. <laughs> Brother. <laughs> Um, to save your life, you left home. Yeah. And to save your life, you continue to carry structures. Yeah. Like, it's hard to trust that someone's going to stay there. Or it's hard to trust that my investors will be there. Right. So I better outperform now to increase the chance that when I really need them, 
they'll be there. Yeah. And there's even a wish that when I ask what would happen, what, what would you like to have happen? You, you, you said in effect to no longer be dependent upon anybody. Yeah. Which maybe now that I look back on it is not the right approach. Well, I will say this, it was the right approach to the 17 year old. Yeah. Because it made you who you are today. And as is often the case, it becomes a, a belief system that may in fact limit your access to happiness mm. and a Zen feeling. The feeling that one would get theoretically after having sat Zazen. Yeah. Because I can't trust that the world will be there for me. Because not only is it true that past generations, I mean, we have only begun to understand the long-term implications of those bombs. Right. And the genocide. And the murder that we labeled as war. Mm. And the fear and the anxiety the world may disappear because guess what in a flash the world can disappear right yeah. yeah especially nowadays i just feel like there's there's so much fear and living in fear living in dc is like fear mm -hmm. um, and how do we act more from a place of love and abundance Mm. It, this sounds so corny but i always kind of lean back on like the idea that we make two you know decisions of fear we make decisions out of love and i think i actively try out of the latter but it's it's hard when you live in a place of anxiety and somewhat pulled back by the shoulds of the past so what i have found is that uh the first impulse in recognizing that age of anxiety that that experience and and, and i really applaud your ability to see the connection between obsessing about the future creating an anxiety or perhaps obsessing about the past, creating a kind of rumination. And neither state really being helpful. Yeah. And, and, and yet, what I have found is that trying to push away that fear, trying to deny that fear, or trying to mitigate that fear by overloading ourselves with activity, you see, perhaps what you may have done. As clever as those structures were, you put yourself into a situation where you're, the way you're trying to feel less burdened by the responsibility is to take on more burdens. Mm. I know, I'll have two companies. It was incredibly brilliant. Yeah. And only someone who has the intellectual prowess that you obviously have could have come up with that structure and the downside to that structure is not that you have not one set of investors but two sets of investors about whom to obsessively worry yeah and now i think there's this like deep fear down that i'm sure you've heard this we're entrepreneurs we have a 10-year window Mm. You know, a 10-year window before you just get exhausted. Or then you just poof, 
blow up and then you go away. Yeah. I like, wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I forget where I heard this, but it was this idea of 10 years where, you know, life starts happening around you. Maybe you want to get, you know, married and have kids. And I feel like that might change for mm-hmm. me. I, I don't know. Um, but there's also this idea that I think as entrepreneurs, you're all in and you're all your eggs are in one basket and your fear is that if all goes away, that who are you at the end of it? Mm. And maybe if I had two and one goes, then at least I have the other still. Maybe that, I, that, that would, that makes a lot of sense to me or it makes a lot of sense to a five-year-old. Yeah. Right. Meaning, and, and I, I, I say that purposefully because so many of these belief systems are laid down at those early ages. Right. And yet um, to reflect back onto it with adult eyes, one of the core challenges that I think is behind the belief system is, well, if it all goes away, which we've acknowledged is not just your fear, but actually in a multi-generational fear. Right. If it all goes away, well, who am I? Right. Right. And so um, what would the Buddha say in response to that? That, I mean, these are all fake illusions anyway, like (laughs) false beliefs. And maybe we're all just projecting whatever we want on ourselves. And like, maybe we are, we are nothing. Well, on the one hand, we are nothing, and so therefore we are everything. Sure, yeah. Right? Because on the one hand, what is nothing, you know, to use the Buddhist terminology, is Mara, is illusion. Mm. It's the construct. And so therefore, what's left is the thing that is everything, the thing that is the interdependent, interconnected, human being who is fundamentally basic good by no other activity, no other accomplishment than simply having incarnated as a human being. The second noble truth of course is following the first noble truth that life is filled with suffering is filled with dukkha, yeah. existential suffering. The second noble truth, which is that which we do to push away and not acknowledge and not work with that suffering, exacerbates that suffering. Yeah. So I'll have two companies. <laughs> but maybe I should have three or four or five. You see where I'm headed. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, and the biggest fear for, I think, me is like, can I ever work for someone again? Do I want to give up that control? That is scary. Hmm. Yeah. What would happen? What's, what's the fearful image that comes to mind? Maybe a loss of identity with that. Um, freedom, control. If we were to strip away all of the things that by which you use to identify yourself, the multiple roles, the responsible 
woman, yeah. a capable person, if we were to strip all that away, what remains? I don't know why that's so hard to answer. I think that's the existential question, isn't it? Yeah. I think the thing is, I'll make an observation from an old man point of view. Um, I think we spend our 20s and our 30s in different developmental stages. We spend our 20s developing a sense of an adulthood independent from or in opposition to or in accordance with our parents mm. and the family structure that we grew up with. And as we enter our 30s, we start to ask ourselves this larger question, who the fuck am I? Independent of all these things. Right, right. And, yeah. you know, unfortunately, the answer doesn't come from some coach on a podcast conversation. Damn. Yeah, damn, right? Before we started recording, I noticed a tattoo. It's, um, I noticed immediately that it was a Tibet, Tibetan symbol. Yeah. It was a Tibetan um, uh, uh, pictograph. And it's on your wrist, just below your wrist, on, uh, just above the forearm. Am I seeing that right? Yeah. And it's black. And, 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 and what, what does it stand for? What does it, uh, what does it say, if you will? And what does it mean to you? So it says strength. Uh, and what it means to me is, I mean, I guess literally strength. And, you know, I could have gone in kanji, which is the Japanese mm -hmm. you know, um, kanji or language, but for some reason that didn't really identify with me. And I wanted something that was a little bit more non-literal or just something a little bit more like open for interpretation. Mm. And uh, I got it at the time in 2016 when I thought we were going to go out of business and my business partner was leaving. Uh, I couldn't close money. I didn't know what we were doing. And it was like a year of just lull. And I was living in a studio with somebody else and not paying myself in my fourth year. And I thought I was going to just, I don't know, not make it. Mm -hmm. um, but we made it and I think coming out of that this this was sort of just like a lesson and I remember my friend was like you won't regret it because it was just a lesson and sort of stamp of where you were at at some point in life and I wanted to honor that I recognize uh, many of those feelings and and the Listeners may or may not know that I have a spider tattoo. Wow. And if they really want to know the story of that, they have to listen to my interview with Tim Ferriss, whose opening question to me was, tell me about the spider tattoo. I would love to know the story about the spider tattoo. Can you share you gotta, that? You got to listen to Tim Ferriss. I mean, I'll listen to it again. I just did not. Yeah. It, um, but I will say that uh, it is, uh, I've had uh, this spider since 2010 
and um, uh, it is a spirit guide. Yeah. And um, what I will tell you is I, I recognize what you were describing in terms of the pain and, and all. And um, what I'm hearing is in the word strength is both an admonition to yourself to remember your strength and a declaration to the world. Because of course, unlike your tattoo, um, mine, mine is hidden. Yeah. Yeah. Yours right. is out there to be seen, glanced right. at by a guy that you're about to have a podcast conversation with. Right. Right. And so there's a declarative aspect to this that I reflect back to you. And so maybe we can shift back to sort of the, the core questions that you're holding. And because I did promise you, what, what, how would you frame the question that's before you now as it relates to the business? And what, what do you see the choices that you have to make? What do you, what do you, what's before you? I think I need to, I think I need to just make a decision and stick with it. And I know that sounds so corny, but I've, I think when I allude to this idea that we didn't accomplish anything this year, it's this idea that I get too many opinions and because I want to please and I want to make sure I do good, that I try to make it work for everybody, but not for myself or someone's always going to inevitably be unhappy and have an opinion. And so I think I just need to make a decision stick with it, stick by it, and live up to it. And formulate for me the, the choices that you have to make in order to make that decision. So one could be, do we sell the company now for one of, one of my company's drink? Two would be, uh, you know, how much money do we fundraise for apothecary um, at, you know, what valuation? Mm -hmm. Three is, you know, if we don't sell the company for drink, how would I split my time between the two? Uh, four is, you know, am I going to start this all over again with another business? And what did I learn from that? Did I ever have the opportunity to pause between starting one company and the next? And I don't think I, I do. Notice the, is there, is there a, uh, what is the difference between the first three questions that you had and that last one? What's the qualitative difference and what's the emotional difference in those questions? I think one is all about other people. Mm -hmm. And the last one is probably a little bit more about myself. Yeah, I, I hear that. And I also heard um, uh, the first three are very sort of steps to take, yeah. which are important discussions and the f the fourth is about uh, longer term consequences and what i would suggest that uh one framing to to make this decision to, or to make these decisions is to acknowledge the differences between those understand that um to feel right by yourself you you will want to make good decisions in those first three areas those first three questions and yet the skills necessary to work through the fourth question, which is essentially not who am I if I strip away all the business, but who would I like to be? Yeah. 
and how would I like to be? That the skills necessary there may be found on the cushion. They may be found in the honeybee hives. Mm. Right. They may be found inwardly. Whereas the, in the first three, there's a, there's, a, there's a conviction I need to choose. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to alter slightly the, the, the words before you from I need to decide to I need to choose. For me, the I need to decide can be a kind of self-loathing recursive state because the truth is I'm so indecisive I don't. Whereas choosing means I have agency. Sure. Now, I'm splitting hairs here, but um, what I heard when you were defining those questions was strength, which is ironic because I brought you back to your tattoo. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so I am going to resist the impulse to tell you what to do as much as it would enjoy, I mean, it'd be enjoyable for me especially because I don't have to live with the consequences. <laughs> um, but really suggest instead that um, if you listen carefully, you might already know what choice you'd like to make. Yeah, I think so. I don't, and I, I think I know deep down and it, it's just taking longer to press the, the go button. Well, because I think what's, what's holding you back from pressing the go button is the fear that if you choose unwisely, yeah. it's all going to disappear. Right. And I won't have enough bread in the freezer. And you'll have to split the sweet potato with everybody. <laughs> That's right. Whereas the reality is a little bit different. It is not 1947 Osaka. It is yeah. not. It's not even 1947 Osaka for your mother in Vancouver. Yeah. And she may not ever realize that fully. Mm. But we honor those ghosts. We honor those ancestors. We allow those ghosts to become ancestors. Because if we think about it for a moment... I can only imagine how proud your grandparents and great-grandparents are. I mean, look at you. Look at what you've done. They thought everything had gone away. Right. And it didn't. Whatever your relationship with, with the larger family is, strength. Sorry. Strength. How does that feel? I, 
I tend to be one of those people that like when they come to some sort of realization, more questions pop up. Mm-hmm. And so maybe instead of feeling I'm, I'm more, I have more questions. Mm-hmm. And that includes things like, was this all for pleasing my parents or my family? Mm-hmm. You know, or what does true bliss point really feel like where you're kind of at that present, you know, and where you no longer live in the future and in the past. And then finally is, okay, so if I know that I want to be there, how do I structurally now make some of those decisions to be there? Okay. So notice the quality of, of anxiety that comes in when you start to see the path all of a sudden it starts to ramp up and notice how I want, well, what do I do now? What do I do now? Right. Right. Right? And so we notice that and create some distance with that. We go back to sitting. We go back to the power of that meditative posture, which is to notice what's going on without being drawn into it and recognize that while we may not all be trying to please our parents or assuage their ghosts, we are all subjected to unconscious belief systems that shape us. And those have powered you to power through, to leave home, to make a life for yourself. And Uh, one of the impulses when we start to understand and see these unconscious threads in in my book, I call them the subroutines that define our lives. When we start to see the existence of these subroutines, one of the first impulses is to say, boy, I'm really fucked up. And you're not, you're human. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is part of the shared humanity. When the Buddha said only humans are capable of enlightenment, he said it with the full awareness that we're all dictated to by our crazy unconscious thoughts. Mm-hmm. Right? He, he, the, the, the notion that when, when he said that we're all fundamentally basically good, that we all contain Buddha nature, he was speaking about w- with the full cognition that we're all kind of nutty and we all make ourselves crazy worrying about the future and the past simultaneously. Yeah, all the time. All the time. Yeah. And so part of our work in growing up, part of our work in becoming fully actualized human beings and leaders is to use that leadership experience to look back and say, Wow, look what I have to learn. So that when I'm dealing with that fourth question, what should I do now, becomes how would I like to be? Would I like to be an entrepreneur who's may or may not sell my company going public, but it's really about bringing good, bringing forth good products and services that, in, that uh, enhance people's lives. I suspect there's something in there for you as well. Yeah. 
I think we just want to make an impact of some sorts, you know, I, and what would happen if you understood that you're already making an impact? I think that's the process right now is like coming to, coming to okay with that idea or I don't know if okay is the right word. I, it's coming to be with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for sharing so openly about yourself and your journey. Yeah. Um, I know you've li listened to the show before, and I know you know that there's this creates value for other entrepreneurs so. and the listeners. Yeah. So thank you, and promise me that you'll stay in touch. Thank you so much, Sherry. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Anxiety is something that so many of our clients, and many of us here at Reboot, certainly myself included, have struggled with. Wanting to shed some light on how to free oneself from the grip of anxiety, we teamed up with Josh Roman, COO at Clarita's Mind Scientists, and Dr. Judson Brewer, who some of you may remember as a previous guest on our podcast. And with their help, we are excited to bring to you our newest self-guided email course. Over the course of five days, you'll spend some time differentiating between stress and anxiety and exploring how those work in the brain. You'll focus on the root causes of your anxiety and equip yourself to better understand how and when it shows up for you and what to do about it. We hope you'll join us for this rich learning experience so you can begin to shift out of it more easily, quickly, and harmoniously. To learn more and to sign up, head to reboot.io anxiety.